I'm Avery Smith of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Hey y'all, happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate it, and a blessed Advent to those who observe it. I'm going to start this episode by saying that the little opening bit is no longer entirely accurate. I am no longer Avery Smith. I am now Avery Arden. After years of longing to remove my dead name from the legal record and several long months of courthouse shenanigans, Avery is not only my true name, but my legal one. It's fitting that this is finally happening now, since this whole episode centers around the power of names and the various reasons and ways that people, across generations and genders, cultures and faiths, choose names for themselves. Most people don't get the chance to name themselves, sticking instead with the name they were given as a baby, even though many do take on different surnames over the years. Because living your whole life with just one given name is the norm, in cultures like mine at least, a lot of people respond to the news of a first name change with confusion, condemnation, or even grief. When I told my family several years ago that I wanted to go by Avery now, my mom in particular took it pretty hard. She had given me a name at my birth that held a lot of meaning to her. To learn that the name she'd bestowed with love was actually a source of pain for me, that I considered the name she'd picked to celebrate my life a dead name, a name that made me feel disconnected from life, was difficult for her to process. It's possible that, in those early days, she felt that in rejecting the name she'd picked for me, I was rejecting her. Later, in the process of getting used to calling me Avery, my mom expressed regret that she had not given me a gender-neutral name to begin with. She apologized for it, but I told her I didn't blame her for that at all. I was just happy that at that point, she had learned to put away that old name and embrace me with my new name and my new pronouns. And I really was happy that my loved ones had gotten to the point that they never accidentally deadnamed me anymore. That when they spoke to or about me, only my true name passed their lips. Trans folk call the experience of joy related to our transness gender euphoria, reminding ourselves that dysphoria and alienation from our bodies and our world are not the core elements of the trans experience. Gender euphoria is that feeling of joy and rightness when people affirm us by calling us the right name or pronouns, or when we can look in the mirror and see not a stranger, but ourselves. The first few times my mom casually called me Aves as a loving nickname, I felt that euphoria. I felt seen and loved and celebrated for who I am. My hope is that as this episode unfolds, you will behold the power in names, how they can bring life and connection. Our names hold pieces of ourselves. When someone tells you what you should call them, and you respond by doing so, you are saying yes to a deeper relationship with that person. You are saying yes to looking beyond assumptions or stereotypes so that you can learn to see the real them. What are some of the stories a name can tell? Starting with those trans folk who decide to change our names, our chosen name may tell you what gender means to us, or what values or people we hold dear, or something of our spiritual lives. Many of us, myself included, pick a name out on our own, but others of us receive input from friends or accept a name a loved one bestows on us. And some of us, including some of the people whose stories you will hear shortly, even experience divine assistance in discerning their true names. Trans persons are not the only ones who may receive a new name with spiritual significance. In various religions, individuals who take certain vows receive a new name. My own Aunt Vicky, whose religious name is Sister Jean Anne, will tell us how that works for Catholic nuns. 
Similarly, many members of the Sikhi religion take on a specific family name as part of how they live out their faith. We'll hear a bit about that from a returning guest, Prabhdeep. Continuing with the topic of the cultural significance names can carry, trans persons are not the only ones who experience the rigorous and systematic denial of our true names. Across continents and centuries, colonizers have violently stripped indigenous persons of their traditional names, along with so much else. Meanwhile, many immigrants, especially immigrants of color, encounter teachers, bosses, co-workers, friends, and more, refusing to make the effort to learn how to pronounce their names, often forcing them to take on a name from the dominant culture. My classmate Pawahi's story will speak to those experiences and the power of reclaiming the name that links one to one's people. I'm so excited for you to hear each and every one of these stories right after you hear about another podcast on the Rock Candy Network. Hey Sugar, I'm Erica Michelle. I host a voice diary called Brown Sugar Diaries on the Rock Candy Network where I spill all the tea about my daily experiences, life lessons, my journey to healing and wholeness, my life as an entrepreneur, student doctor, CEO of a nonprofit, and I give my opinion on the current happenings of the world. You see why I have this voice diary? I got a lot of stuff to talk about. Tune into Brown Sugar Diaries wherever you listen to podcasts and let's sip on this tea or wine. You'll cup your business, Sugar, okay? First up on our list today is my friend Eli. If you've been listening to this podcast from the very beginning, you might recognize their story from episode 6, Eli and the Prophet Elijah. I got Eli's permission to reshare a clip from the conversation published back then. Eli's Jewish tradition has a lot to say about the power in naming and renaming. As Rabbi Mike Moskowitz and Seth Marnin describe in their 2018 article, What the Torah and Talmud Teach Us About Calling Transgender People by Their Names, words created the world and still have the ability to change it. The formation of the world began when God said, Let there be light. The mystics explain that the life of a person comes from the letters of their name. Our names, the names we are given and the names we claim, influence our purpose in the world. In the Jewish Bible, when a person's circumstances change or a new part of their journey is revealed, their name may change too. Naomi renames herself Mara moving the meaning of her name from pleasant to bitter after undergoing great grief. Hadassah is renamed Esther and Daniel is renamed Belteshazzar to assimilate them into the culture where they become queen and servant, respectively. Pharaoh gives Joseph the name Zaphonath Panea after he recognizes the life-saving power of Joseph's dream interpretation. And then there are the figures who receive new names, not from human beings, but from God themselves. Heather Paul explores examples of this kind of name change in a 2020 article, writing, Avram, Judaism's first leader, received the name Avraham to mark a significant transformation. In Genesis, God told him to lech lacha from your birthplace and your father's house. Lech Lacha is often understood as go forth. A more accurate translation is go to yourself. For Avraham, this journey was both external and internal. He left his father's house, his father's gods, and his native land. He transformed from the person he was to the person he was meant to be, the father of the Jewish people. Another significant name change in the Torah is that of Yaakov to Yisrael, Jacob to Israel. Yaakov became Yisrael, meaning struggle with God, after wrestling with an angel and prevailing. Just like in these biblical stories, my friend Eli attributes their own chosen name to heavenly inspiration, as you'll hear in this clip from our conversation back in March 2019. Okay, I've never told this story before, but I really want to tell it now. How I chose the name Elijah. Mm -hmm. I 
was up at college and um, I'm guessing everybody listening probably already knows what dysphoria is. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Um, For me, it's this, it's almost claustrophobic. Like you're just trapped. Like there, it's like there's irreconcilable conflict going on within you. And it's, it's like you just don't fit in your skin right. It's like you just want to pull it all off. Oh, that's a mood. (laughs) (laughs) That's a mood. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And when I was at, when I was in college, it was really, really bad. I, I didn't have a very good support system. Um, I wasn't really in a good place mentally, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember there was one night that it was really, really bad. And I mean, um, it, was, it was almost atmospheric as well. There was like this huge storm outside and I was, it was like four in the morning and I could not get to sleep. And I was just curled up under the covers and like borderline in tears. And I at the time, I thought it was just because the song had gotten stuck in my head. Jewish songs will get stuck in your head so easily. I'll be singing them for days. Um, and I started, I started singing a song that we sing at uh, Havdalah, which is at the end of Shabbat. And I'm, I don't think I can sing it right now, but uh, if anybody is curious, it's called Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the Prophet. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I started singing this song, and like I said, it was like four in the morning. I was, I was like almost deliriously exhausted, mm-hmm. and next thing I know, I'm, I'm waking up, and the sun's shining outside, mm-hmm. and I'm, I must have fallen asleep, yeah. and that was kind of curious to me, because I had never fallen asleep that quickly before, mm-hmm. and kind of almost as an experiment whenever I started to get back into that really bad mind space and started, you know, feel claustrophobic and everything again, I'd start singing this song. Wow. And it wouldn't exactly, I mean, it wouldn't make the dysphoria go away. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was kind of like putting a jacket on against the cold. Yeah. I guess. And I have no idea why, but to this day, that song still has that effect. Um, Now that I'm on T, thankfully the dysphoria isn't, really rear its head quite as often mm-hmm. uh but yeah and i've researched elijah the prophet i've yeah. researched that song yeah and i still can't come up with a cohesive answer as to why it works one kind of theory that i i think is interesting that i want to note mm-hmm. is apparently elijah uh in the old talmudic you know scripts and literature yeah. and everything uh elijah would visit rabbis to help them solve particularly difficult uh, legal problems. Interesting. <laughs> now, back then, legal w- was kind of all-encompassing. Yeah. Uh, it, w- it wasn't quite as secular of a de- definition now. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that is also kind of up to interpretation yeah. because legal would still fit with religious, mm-hmm. spiritual, cultural, yeah. you know, rituals. Just like how you kind of live your life to an extent. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Um, which I've, I thought was really interesting because I had this uh, situation in which I felt like the problem that I had was too conflicting. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't figure out how to you know, deal with it. And then I'd start singing this song. And the song is basically asking Elijah to come, um, basically asking for him to come next week and the week after that and continuing. And I was just kind of like, okay, I don't know if I... I don't know if I was talking to Elijah or if I was praying to God. I, does God exist? I don't know. That's not really. <laughs> See, the good thing about Judaism is that that's not you a question have to... I have to answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what I kind of took away from that is that it's okay to not have, it's okay to not have the answers. It's okay to keep wrestling with this. I mean, these are really, really big topics. You don't, you don't need to feel a bunch of pressure to get it solved right away. It's okay. Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu Hagiladi. I am overjoyed that my friend Eli has found heavenly support on their gender journey, including help finding their new name. I return to that article by Marnin and Rabbi Moskowitz for their thoughts on why new names like Eli's are so powerful. When a transgender person chooses a new name and discards their dead name, 
It is an act of creation. Renaming ourselves, claiming our names in order to live our lives is a part of our own holy recreation. Calling us by our new names, correct names, is an opportunity for others to contribute to our lives and participate in the holiness. The authors have more to say about why it's so important that people respect trans persons' names. They write, How we refer to people, how we respect their names and identities, matters. The Talmud teaches us that it is better to be verbose in order to be sensitive than concise and insensitive. We learn that God added extra letters into the Torah just to show us that it is better to be wordy and even awkward if it prevents one from uttering something unrefined. That idea reminds me of arguments against using they pronouns or neo pronouns or adding the word siblings when you say brothers and sisters because it's just too confusing or it's weird or I mess it up and have to stop and correct myself every time. According to Marnin and Moskowitz, it's worth any potential awkwardness. There's one more way these authors link respect of trans people's names to Jewish wisdom. Apparently, many rabbis considered it inappropriate to refer to Abraham by his previous name, Abram. As Rabbi Danya Rutenberg cites in her own article on true names, the Talmud says this, Bar Kapara taught, Anyone who calls Abraham Abram transgresses a positive commandment, as it is stated, and your name will be Abraham, Genesis 17.5. Rabbi Eliezer says, the act of doing this transgresses a negative commandment, as it is stated, and your name shall no longer be called Abram. Got that? Rabbi Rutenberg asks. Calling Abraham by his old name is a violation of not just one, but two different categories of commandments. The sanctity of this name change is real, and the harm it causes by not honoring it is not just interpersonal, but theological. Referring to Abraham by his former name is, indeed, a sin. She extends this sin of calling Abraham by his old name to the sin of calling a trans person, or any person really, by their old name if they have asked you not to. Indeed, rabbis across the centuries have taken the honoring of names very seriously. Returning to Marnin and Moskowitz, we learn that one rabbi, Rabbi Zakai, attributed his long life to having, among other reasons, never called someone by something other than their name. Rabbi Zakai was rewarded with long life because he contributed to the life of others by calling them by their appropriate name. Affirming a person's name really does contribute to their life. According to a 2018 study in the Journal of Adolescent Health, calling a trans person by the name they chose rather than by their birth name can reduce their risk of suicide by as much as 65%. As I've already mentioned, you don't just avoid negative consequences in avoiding a person's dead name. You embrace positive results when you make sure to use their chosen name. In the next story I have for you, Adrian brings up the disconnect they felt for their given name and the sense of rightness they get from the name they discovered. He describes his family's initial reactions to his chosen name, contrasted with how the name has helped Adrian lean into growth not only for themselves, but for others. Growing up, I always gravitated towards picking boy names whenever I played video games or wrote stories but I never thought I'd be anything but my birth name. I always kind of felt like I was stuck with it. By the time I started to realize I was trans, I further disconnected from my very feminine birth name. I spent several years thinking about names, trying out a few online, but those didn't quite feel like me. A couple years ago, when the prospect of coming out and transitioning was suddenly getting a lot closer, I decided to give name searching another go. I knew this time I wanted to keep my initials the same, so I started looking for A names. And then I came across the name Adrian. It was like a custom-made glove just for me. It fits so well, it shocked me a bit on how much it felt like me. 
I am quite certain God gave me my name, considering I've never had any other name feel so right. When I came out to my family a year later, both my mom and my grandma bristled at the name's meaning. Adrian has a variety of meanings, depending on what website you look at. So sometimes it's dark one, sometimes it's darkness, sometimes it's richness or dark richness. My family took dark one to me the devil, though that totally ignores the fact that the name of Adrian is of Italian origin, and it would make much more sense if it was referring to a tanned person. And also saying the name means the devil is equally hilarious to me, as there have been several popes throughout history named Adrian too. Of the different meanings of Adrian, I really honed in on dark richness. Contextually, it likely is in reference to the Adriatic Sea, to the east of Italy, but dark richness also makes me think of rich, fertile soil, dark and full of nutrients. This meaning also connects to me not only in the way that I love gardening, but also in how I help others grow and how I've changed since discovering myself. Especially in the past couple of years, I've really leaned into my personal growth and helping others grow, especially as someone who currently researches science education and has been a tutor and a teaching assistant for several years. You could say I'm very invested in helping people learn. To have God acknowledge this by giving me the name Adrian is a great honor, and it marks a new chapter in my life. I will never get over hearing these stories of the divine bestowing names upon their trans children. Adrian's story, especially the idea of darkness bringing richness and nourishment, reminded me of a brief snippet from Justin Tannis's book, Transgender Theology, first published back in 2003. In the book, Tannis shares the name change story of Darren Isaac Blue. It goes like this. I asked the great beyond to send me the name I would live with, and weeks later I awoke with it heavy on my tongue, as though angels had rested their flaming swords in my mouth while I slept, breathed its syllables into my dreaming head. In this name, I am conceived. The pause between names was pregnant with me. My blood is learning to pulse and flow. My body, raw and red and wet, is taking shape. Our next story comes from Michelle Vandover, who discusses their own experiences regarding family and faith community support. My wife, Leah, kindly read Michelle's story for her, so that's whose voice you're about to hear. My name is Michelle, and I am a trans-feminine, non-binary person who was assigned male at birth. My birth name was Matthew. In 2015 or 2016, I realized I was non-binary, or rather, I got the language to express it. And in 2018, I no longer felt comfortable with my name, so I looked for a more androgynous name. I settled on Michelle, changed the spelling from the French name M-I-C-H-E-L, because it is not explicitly male or female, and to honor my dad, Michael, who was really awesome about my coming out. My church is progressive and was mostly good about the change. No one protested, just the normal adjustment period. I was the worship coordinator, and I read an article about an Anglican church in New Jersey, I think it may have been Delaware, that had a ceremony to celebrate their pastor, a trans woman who had transitioned. Given what I knew about the importance of names in the Bible, I thought it would be a good idea to have that sort of ceremony in our back pocket in case we needed it, and to be honest, because I was in the middle of my name change then. So I proposed to the worship committee that we put together a similar ceremony. I found one and a few other people found some, so we merged and pruned to create a ceremony that could be used during a service. That fall, we had that ceremony, and someone from my church posted pictures on Instagram about how it was the name God always knew me by. It was short, but well worth it. My sister came down from Pennsylvania. I live near D.C., 
and I had a non-religious friend who was queer stand with me during the ceremony. Now we have that ceremony, a pride prayer service, and a special service to celebrate the fact that the church is affirming. Ugh, I get so emotional when I think about faith communities that don't only tolerate but celebrate trans folk. Everyone deserves the kind of support that Michelle has experienced in church. I asked Michelle to share a piece of the renaming ceremony their church held for them, and they sent back the ceremony's closing prayer. Here's that prayer now. O God, in renaming your servants, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Peter, and Paul, you gave them new lives and new tasks, new love and new hope. We now hold before you your child, Michelle, Bless them with a new measure of grace as they take this name. Write Michelle again in your heart and on your palm, and grant that we may be worthy to call ourselves Christian, for the sake of your Christ, whose name is love, and in whom, with you and the Spirit, we pray. Bear this name in the name of Christ. Share it in the name of mercy. Offer it in the name of justice. So far, we've focused on trans name change stories, but we are not the only ones who change our names. I think that exploring why others might change their names can help clarify just how important, powerful, and even holy such a change can be. A change of name is a facet of a whole bunch of religions across the world, either for every member or for those who take up specific kinds of religious life. In Mahayana Buddhism, for instance, when a person is ordained into monastic life or into the laity, they receive a new name called a Dharma name. These names are more aspirational than descriptive, saying something about what the individual is on the way to becoming rather than what they already are. As one person I found online named Sid explains, I have received four new names during my Buddhist journey. One friend suggested, a name is something to live up to. I find this the most apt explanation of the roles of these new names in my life. I receive a name, grow into it, and then I'm ready for another name. In 1987, I chose to study with Vietnamese Zen master, poet, and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh. He gave me the name Heart of the Heart, Tum Tum in Vietnamese. This became a call to grow in love and peace. Later, when I took the full precepts of the Order of Interbeing, which gave me the status of a lay monk, I received the name True Full Taste. Yep, that one sounds weird until you hear the full phrase, True Full Taste of Awakening. It reflects my lifelong commitment to opening to love and wisdom. An insightful teacher chooses a name that will inspire a student. The dedicated practitioner lives into and lives up to the name and continues to grow. I really liked that idea of growing into one's new name. I also found some commentary from a person who practices with the Triratna Buddhists who explained the name change as symbolic of moving from one way of life into another. For us, they explain, the renaming of a person symbolizes spiritual death, e.g. the passing away from an old life or way of existence. Fortunately, this is followed by spiritual rebirth, or it would all be a little bit bleak. That idea of spiritual death and rebirth really speaks to me. Different trans people experience the concept of a dead name in various ways. It makes them feel dead inside to hear it, or it was never life-giving. It's a name that's dead to them and should be dead to the world. There are others who don't completely hate their old name or experience it as never having been them. They see it as simply an earlier part of their journey. Their new name symbolizes the next state of their lives, just as that Buddhist describes. 
My own Catholic roots also ritualize name changes for laypersons and ordained persons alike. Every Catholic youth goes through the process of confirmation, usually around 8th grade, where we say yes to continuing to be Catholic. At this point, we choose a saint or other holy figure whom we ask to be our patron, and we take on their name as our confirmation name. It's usually tucked into our full name after our middle name, at least in my culture. I will say that I don't know anyone who, after confirmation, started actually going by that confirmation name. However, the name change that many nuns and monks have gone through typically does involve being called by that name in religious circles. Quite a few members of my extended family are priests or nuns, including my dad's oldest sister. While with family, my aunt goes by her birth name, Vicky. That's what I've always called her. But her fellow nuns and others who know her first and foremost as a nun call her Sister Jean Anne. I reached out to Aunt Vicky for her name change story. Here's what she told me, read by my wife Leah on Aunt Vicky's behalf. I entered the Sisters of the Holy Cross Notre Dame on September 10th, 1965. Our first period of religious formation the process leading through steps to first vows, then final, would last eight years. During each phase of the eight years, you are evaluated by your superiors before proceeding on to first vows at three years and final vows at eight years. A significant step in most religious orders before vows was the process of being assigned the name of a saint that you will be known as for life. Vatican II was in the process of identifying practices in both the secular and religious life of the church, so our naming process was also included. Near the end of the nine-month postulancy period, we were asked to submit three names for consideration that would be formalized as we moved into the novitiate. It was suggested that we include our own baptismal name in combination with two other choices. I first thought to use the names of my parents, Loyola and Donald. Oh dear me, I felt neither suited me in any way. So to use my own baptismal name, I suggested Anne Victoria, and finally also suggested Anne Thomas and Anne Matthew, after my brother Tom and my favorite gospel writer Matthew. The names were submitted in April 1966, and on June 10th, 1966, I was called to the altar, dressed in full habit for the first time, to receive my forever name. There were close to 35 of us that day. Of the 52 that had come together the previous September of 1965, I held my breath. Sister M. Jean Ann Smith. I was thrilled I got Ann and Mom's middle name, Jean. Her parents called her Betty Jean all her life, so that more than pleased her too. In about the mid to late 80s, religious communities for women were given permission from the Vatican to return to baptismal names if preferred. I never wavered. My Aunt Vicky, also named Sister Jean Anne, found much meaning in taking on a new name as she moved into a new stage in her life. While she continues to be Vicky to her family, Jean Anne is the name that symbolizes her spiritual vocation, her unique relationship to the divine, and the ways she is called to serve her fellow human beings on earth. Another religion in which names hold special significance is Sikhi. That's S-I-K-H-I, sometimes referred to as Sikhism or Sikhism. Many Sikhs have a given name, a family name, and a Khalsa name. Almost all Sikh-specific given names are gender-neutral, which as a non-binary person, I can't help but find really cool. M.S. Aluwalia explains the benefits of unisex names in this way. Western parents tend to give male children names that have religious significance or those that represent qualities of manhood, courage, and bravery, while girls are given names depicted feminine qualities such as beauty, virtue, and modesty. Among six, there is no such differentiation, as the same first name can be used for a male as well as female child.
And then there are the Khalsa names, of which there are only two, Singh and Kor. Sikh men take on the name Singh, meaning lion, as part of their name, while Sikh women take on Kor, meaning either prince or princess. And, well, doesn't a separate name for men and women, with no options for people operating outside those two genders, sound a lot like a reinforcement of a gender binary? When I found myself, an outsider to this religion, making that assumption, I knew I had to do some research in order to check those assumptions. I did a little reading online, and then I reached out to an old guest of the show, Prabdeep Singh Kehal, to learn that there is indeed far more power and complexity to these two Khalsa names than might first meet the eye. It was the 10th Sikh Guru, Guru Govind Singh, who first established these Khalsa names in 1699. And he did so not to reinforce a gender hierarchy, but to erase a class hierarchy. From its inception in the 1500s, Sikhi has been an egalitarian, anti-caste ideology. Sikhs are not to discriminate on account of caste, gender, or any other basis. But in the Punjabi cultures surrounding the first Sikh practitioners, family names made one's caste evident from the very moment you introduced yourself. This is why Guru Govind Singh established the two Khalsa names. Six across every caste would share a name, no longer separated by unjust ranking. An article I found on SickWomen.com notes that a reason for two Khalsa names, one for men and one for women, was to enable women to establish an identity independent of their father or husband. Because of the Khalsa name, unlike in many cultures, Sikh women don't always take on their husband's surname. From this perspective, Kord is a name that helps generate women's autonomy. Meanwhile, all six, regardless of gender, were also told to incorporate the five Ks into their dress. The Kesh, or uncut hair, the Karta, or iron bracelet, the Kanga, or wooden comb, the Kacha, or cotton underwear, and the Kirtpan, or steel sword. The five Ks show us that perpetuating a gender binary was not the Guru's intention, for with them, six of all genders share one code. When I reached out to Prabdeep for their insight, they let me know that this topic around Sikh names is a big conversation topic in Sikhi communities right now. It is one that Prabdeep is still pondering, so they didn't have any conclusive answers for me. But, Prabdeep said, what I can say for now is that the names were given to us, for us, to recognize the social and communal obligation we have to fight injustice amongst ourselves and beyond ourselves. They offer access to an emancipatory living, and that is their purpose, not to reify perceived social differences between sexes or genders. Though the names are often perceived as legitimating the idea of inherent biological sex, I read them as one strategy chosen by our gurus to eradicate a perceived social hierarchy and say there is no hierarchy. And if there is one, we made it as humans. So we can unmake it as humans. I am thankful to Prabdeep for sharing a little of their time and energy to help me, an outsider to their religion, understand a little better about a complex topic. The main thing I came away with is, it's okay if I, as an outsider, don't fully get it, because the context around the issue goes deeper than I know. Still, I love Prabdeep's last point about hierarchy that faiths like Sikhi state that no dividing and ranking of humans exists, that any hierarchies we do perceive are systems constructed by human beings, not the divine, and therefore we can and must break them down, just as Guru Govind Singh aimed to do through the Khalsa names. The final name story I have for you today, though there are some more coming in the future, further explores the cultural significance that names can hold. 
Like my Aunt Vicky, who goes by Vicky in one sphere of life, and Sister Jean Ann in others, this next person does not consider the name she most often went by when I first met her to be a dead name, a name that shouldn't be used for her any longer. I knew Pawahi by the name she used at Louisville Seminary when we went there together, Visha. She and I met as classmates and bonded a bit through our pets. My cat and her little dachshund loved to greet one another when outside on walks. I also appreciate Visha for joining me in the effort to get the seminary's bathroom signage changed to affirm and protect gender diversity. It's largely thanks to her persistence in that goal that Louisville Seminary features more all-gender restrooms than they previously did, and that the gendered bathrooms across campus include signs welcoming people to use whatever bathrooms best suit their gender. But that's not what we're talking about today. I just can't resist praising Visha for her activism, solidarity, and all-around awesomeness whenever I get the chance. And it turns out that her name is tied to that activism, as you'll hear in this story, which I read on her behalf. The story of my name is complex. As I have grown older, I understand how much weight in identity my name carries. My full name is Visha Pawahi Honey Girl Souza. Visha derived from a model my aunt used to model with, so since my mom wanted all her children to have V names, I was named Visha. My middle name is Pawahi. It is Hawaiian, meaning consumed by fire. My family and close, close friends call me Honey Girl. It's a nickname I am still called by my family to this day. Honey Girl is after my aunt who passed before I was born. Her name was Donnie Girl. She didn't want anyone to be named after her, so instead, when I was born, I was called Honey Girl to honor her wishes. My last name is Portuguese. Again, there's a whole story about it. Growing up, my maternal grandparents were the only family members who called me Pawahi. In the same sense, my paternal grandparents called me Visha. Everyone else in my family called me Honey Girl. It was not until kindergarten that my mom told the school my name was Visha. I hated this name because no one could pronounce it correctly. All the kids would make fun of me in school. As I grew into a teen, I started to like Visha, but it still felt very informal and disconnected. I'd go by Visha or just V so people could understand it, let alone say it. As long as I can remember, since my 20s, I have always wanted to be called Pawahi. But Americans are good at stripping identity from people. I learned this in undergrad when I went to WKU and some of my Asian and African friends took on American names so that people wouldn't mispronounce their real names. Being called Pawahi was going to be impossible. The whole time I lived in Kentucky, only three of my friends learned to say Pawahi correctly, and that's a span of over 27 years. So when I lived there, when my name was written out or when I was introduced for lectures, graduations, presentations, I started to make sure to include the P in my name so that it would be Visha P. Souza. The P in my name was the way of including the Kanaka Maole side of me and carrying on my heritage. I wanted that part of me to be recognized. Today, as a PhD student, it is important for me to go by V. Pawahi Souza. My PhD research is based on and includes the native Hawaiian, Kanaka Maole, side I have been trying to grasp onto my whole life. I am so blessed to live where everyone has tried and tried to pronounce my name until they got it right. For publishing and academic reasons, I will use V. Pawahi Souza so that my Hawaiian side takes the lead, and Visha, a name which was actually made up by the model my aunt modeled with, steps aside. I am still very much Visha P. Souza. That will never fail. My friends in Kentucky still call me V or Visha, but that's a piece of me that lives there. In Hawaii, to my family, I will always be Honey Girl, but to Hawaiians I just meet, they meet Pawahi. It took me 39 years to embrace and finally be called a name that is the epitome of power to me.
I was named after Princess Bernice Pawahi Bishop, a princess who is well-respected and loved to this very day in Hawaii. She is still a philanthropist, even in her death, and gives her all through her estate. Her estate funds students at Kamehameha schools and gives them opportunities most Kanaka students would not get. So growing up, my mother told me that my name Pawahi meant the word princess, which was wrong. I went around telling people this until 10th grade. In 10th grade, I moved back to Hawaii for the school year and took Ololo Hawaii, which is our native tongue, and my teacher told us to write what our Hawaiian name was and what we thought it meant. That was easy for me because I'd been told Pawahi meant princess my whole life. My teacher then told students if they didn't have Hawaiian names, he would give them one. In Hawaiian traditions, a mother or father is not allowed to name their child a Hawaiian name. My grandmother named me Pawahi. I'm not sure even she knew what it meant. After I turned in my paper, I was so proud because I knew what my name meant and just knew my teacher was going to be so proud that I knew Hawaiian. When I got my paper back later that week, my teacher said, Aole e Pawahi. Aole means no. Your name does not mean princess. It means consumed by fire. Pau equals to be done or finished, and ahi equals ashes. It was then in 10th grade that I knew there was so much power in my name. While my mom thought it meant princess, I was a little firecracker. At my cousin's graduation from Kamehameha Schools in 2017, I was able to attend the prestigious ceremony. There, each student who was given the privilege to speak at graduation spoke of love, respect, and thanks to the honor of Princess Pawahi. I was overwhelmed and honored to be named after such a well-loved woman. I remember being in awe and getting cold chills as I listened to how they spoke of her. Today, my duty is to be passionate about my research and to change the narrative around Hawaii and Oceania. I very much want to give back to my community in the way Princess Pawahi has, and I intend on doing justice to a name I was given that is very much me. I will always be Visha P. Souza, but in this season, I am V. Pawahi Souza. And one day I know there will be a reason why this email alone will hold importance in knowing what is in a name. Thanks for letting me cry to the computer because I didn't realize how much I love my name and my identity. Our names are our identities. I am honored to know Visha Pawahi Souza, who is doing powerful work in her various communities. I can't wait to see where her journey takes her as she progresses in getting her PhD in Vancouver, Canada. If you want to see some of her work, visit at Pawahisuza on Twitter or thepolynesianresistor.com. I've included those links in the show notes so you can see how both those things are spelled. Also, if you would like to support her financially, since being a PhD student in another country is quite the challenge, you can reach out to her at either of those previous links or at visha.suza at gmail.com. That's V-I-I-S-H-A period S-O-U-Z-A at gmail.com. This episode is getting long, so I'm going to wrap it up for now. But as I mentioned, this is not the end of name stories coming your way in the near future. For one thing, I plan to publish a short bonus episode sometime soon with thoughts about my own name including a long rant about how absurdly complicated it can be to get your first name legally changed. Seriously, it took way more time and effort and money to go through this process than it should have. I also had a fabulous conversation with another seminary classmate of mine, Eric Sharp, about how his name has changed over time, but not his personal name, but rather how he names his experience of faith. Over the years, he has moved from being a Christian to naming himself a pluralist, agnostic womanist. To give you an idea of what that episode will hold, here's the message he first sent when pitching the idea to me. 
The story of name changing I am thinking about is actually the journey I went on trying to find the name of my faith that would be more inclusive and loving. Finding a way to reclaim words like Christ, calling, or salvation. So much of that work has been informed and guided by my work with folks at the intersection of theological trauma, spiritual formation, and cultivating affirming authentic love. We had a roaring good time talking through all of that, so much so that our conversation kind of got out of hand and went on for nearly two hours instead of the planned 10 or 15 minutes. Hence why Eric's story will be its own episode instead of part of this one. So stay tuned for that in the next month or two. For now, I want to express my gratitude one more time to all the people who shared their stories for this episode. I already knew from my own experience how deeply personal and empowering a name can be, but these further stories deepened and expanded that understanding. It's clearer to me than ever that names matter, that honoring names matters, that doing so is a way of affirming one another's unique genders, faiths, cultures, and journeys. If you never have before, I invite each of you to take a little time to ponder your own name or the various names you've been called in life. What meanings do they hold for you? How does your name isolate you or connect you to other human beings? If in your pondering you come up with anything you want to share, feel free to reach out to me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear anything you want to say. That's all for now. If you want to support me, spreading word about Blessed Are the Binary Breakers or rating and reviewing it on iTunes is a fabulous help. Regardless, thank you for being part of this podcast by taking the time to share your story or to listen or read along. Take care out there. Go do what you can to break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life. Thank you.